to Tea Tonic and Toxin, a book club and podcast for anyone who wants to explore the best mysteries and thrillers ever written. I'm your host, Sarah Harrison. And I'm your host, Carolyn Daughters. Pour yourself a cup of tea, a gin and tonic, but not a toxin, and join us on a journey through 19th and 20th century mysteries and thrillers, every one of them a game changer. Sarah, we are back. I know with our super special guest, Julie Re- Revet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Names are important. Names are important. Re- rhymes with Corvette is what yes. we have come to understand. <laughs> if you haven't listened to our first episode with Julie, be sure to catch that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are excited to do one more with her and about the Thin Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's our first book selection of 2024, so so cool. But before we get into the book and to our conversation with Julie, we want to thank our sponsor. Yes, we do. Today's sponsor is Linden Botanicals, a Colorado-based company that sells the world's healthiest herbal teas and extracts. Their team has traveled the globe to find the herbs that offer the best science-based support for stress relief, energy, memory, mood, kidney health, joint health, digestion, and inflammation. U.S. orders over $75 ship free. To learn more, visit lindenbotanicals.com and use code MYSTERY to get 15% off your first order. Thank you, Linden. Yes. One of our favorite sponsors, for sure. Yes. We also have a listener award for this episode, and that award goes to Carrie Gilbert of Alberta, Canada. So, uh, thank you very much, Carrie, for being a member of the Tetonic and Toxin Book Club. What that entails, essentially, is that you're just, you know, checking out our website, paying attention to our social media, and listening to the podcast episodes. We really appreciate you, Carrie, and to show our appreciation, we're going to send you a cool Tetonic and Toxin sticker. A gorgeous sticker. Mm-hmm. Is Carrie our first uh, Canadian winner? She's not. We oh, had wow. one other. Yeah, we are. We're global. So we're all we're, over Canada. Yeah, we're all. We we've um we have three listener awards that we've given out to um people in other countries, which is a big deal for us. And as we start our third year, Canada, Switzerland, and England. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, so if you'd like your own on-air shout out, and why wouldn't you? Uh, all you have to do is weigh in on the books we're reading. You can comment on our website, tetonicandtoxin.com. Post to our Facebook and Instagram pages at Tetonic and Toxin. Uh, we'll give you the shout out. We'll send you an awesome sticker. Be sure to also subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And we'd appreciate your reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Tetonic, Tetonic and Toxin. Your reviews mean everything to us, and they help like-minded listeners find us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Shelley. I get to introduce our guest today. Uh, Carrie. No? Carrie. Carrie. I apologize, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you. <laughs> I get to introduce our guest today, Julie M. Rivette. She is the granddaughter of DeShiel Hammett. She's an advocate for Hammett's life in literature a trustee for his estate and an essayist, editor, and lecturer. Working with Hammett biographer Richard Lehman, she has edited six books by or about her grandfather, including 
Selected Letters of Dashiell Hammett, 2001, Return of the Thin Man, 2012, The Hunter and Other Stories, 2013, and The Big Book of the Continental Op, 2017. Her interviews and essays have been published at Home and Abroad, helping to maintain her grandfather's legacy and introduce his writings to new generations. She lives with her husband in Orange County, California, where she raised two daughters and earned degrees in American Studies and Communication Studies from California State University, Long Beach. Welcome back, Julie. Uh, Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Our book for the month, our first book of 2024 is The Thin Man. So for those of you that haven't read it yet, or if you just need a refresher, I have a short summary here. The Thin Man by DeShiel Hammett is a classic detective novel that introduces charming married couple Nick and Nora Charles and their pet schnauzer, Asta. Nick is a retired private detective, and Nora is his wealthy and sophisticated young wife. Set in Prohibition-era New York City, During the holiday season, the story begins as Nick learns about the disappearance of his former client, Claude Winant. To uncover the truth behind the disappearance, Nick will have to draw upon his investigative savvy and navigate quite a few parties and speakeasies. The novel is known for its charismatic lead characters, stylish prose, and witty dialogue. In the end, The Thin Man is less of a hard-boiled noir in the vein of Red Harvest in The Maltese Falcon, than a highly entertaining blend of mystery and social comedy. Comedy. Today we're excited to talk about The Thin Man, our first book selection of 2024. You can learn more about all our 2024 book selections, along with our 2022 and 23 book selections at ttonicandtoxin.com and on Facebook and Instagram at ttonicandtoxin. Mm-hmm. Let's get into it. Yeah, This was a really fun book. This is a really fun book. It It's so different. So one reason we chose it for our 2024 book list, which is going to range from 1934 to 1939, is it's so different than Red Harvest and The Maltese Falcon, which we read last year. It's, it's startlingly different. Almost you wouldn't know it was from the same person. It's funny. It's light. It's got this charming married couple you know it's I don't know what was your take on it Sarah um yeah it was all all three of the novels were a little bit different to me um (laughs) Red Harvest one we the one we started with came in and I was a little bit like is this a mystery (laughs) (laughs) what is this this is like a shootout um then the Maltese Falcon um was its its own very unique, very noir. And then this one did have a, it had a lot more jokes. And what was interesting to me, and I'd love to hear Julie's take on this too, is we actually got some mental commentary by Nick Charles. Whereas I felt with like the Continental Op and um, Sam Spade, we got the actions, we got the dialogue, the sort of inner workings we were left to interpret. Um, but Nick actually did give us kind of little tidbits of his assessments of situations and his, his feelings and thoughts. What, what do you think about that, Julie? Uh, I, uh, I think that you're right on the money with Sam Spade. We never see inside Sam Spade, which mm-hmm. is one of the fascinating things about the book, um, that it's told, you know, like 
from a very limited perspective, right? Yeah. He did this, he did that. Um, what I find fascinating to do with the Maltese Falcon is to contrast the words that Sam Spade says or, or others and their facial yes. expressions. Yes. Um, because he's constantly, you know, his teeth are showing. It doesn't necessarily mean mm-hmm. smiling. His mm-hmm. teeth are showing. Um, or the eyes are glittering or there's a vein throbbing or a hand shaking. Um, and those are not at all in the dialogue. So it's kind of like the, the dialogue is telling one story, but the body is telling a truer story. Yes. So, but you'd never see inside. Um, I think one of the only times he says Sam's Bridget had chosen her dress because it matched her eyes. And that's mm. about as introspective as you get. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the rest of it, you have to be the detective also and observe closely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Nick Charles, it's just a looser style. He did not adhere that. I think to write the Falcon the way he did was such hard work mm. um, to keep that kind of tight control over every view um and yeah he he didn't work that hard in in uh, the nick charles i give me an example for the in the what the where he does reveal some of his inner self do you have it i'm there? so glad you asked i started actually marking it mm-hmm. in my book <laughs> the first time i noticed it i put a square around it because oh. i was like what <laughs> i actually saw a thought that he thought mm-hmm. Um, and then so I kind of kept marking it, and I was surprised hmm. that it was as frequent as it was. So hmm. let me oh. flip through. And you it's not like I wouldn't say any kind of sort of deep. <laughs> like, yeah. not, oh, here yeah. we go. Here we go. Here's one. A couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on this copy. Chapter 10. Towards the end of chapter 10. Just a big doll, it's a shame. We had dinner and went back to the Normandy. Dorothy was there. I felt as if I had expected that. And I was like, what? You felt something? <laughs> I felt. You felt. <laughs> you expected yeah. it? And so I started marking it. And then I was like, I'm going to count up. Maybe it's only three times. Uh-huh. But it was actually a lot more. Yeah. Um, but, huh. you know, okay. nothing yeah, that sort is of. definitely. It's not emotional. It's not like deep and probing. But hey, right. he's a, it's more than Sam Spade. <laughs> it makes it easier to write the book, I think, when you can say that. For sure. Uh, it isn't such a, you know, so tightly prescribed. Um, so, no, I think that that's a great observation, and I'm going to have to look for it next time. Um, <laughs> yes. Because I, yeah, I have, I, it's funny, I've been uh, listening to the audio book, which oh. is uh, different, because I can listen to it. I've been, you know, mm-hmm. while I'm out walking and driving and such, and so it it gives a little bit different uh perspective on it which mm-hmm. is kind of fun to sometimes read and sometimes listen yeah uh, although it's always um disorienting when it's not you know william powell's voice or yes. you know humphrey bogart's voice mm-hmm. uh, you have to kind of get over that mm-hmm. um tell me more uh, about the the different perspective of the audio book how is it how is the feel different i think sometimes the emphasis is a little different or maybe things that i would have naturally kind of just passed by and read quickly it's suddenly oh you know i didn't dorothy said what yes. or you know it just draws my attention to to different factors and maybe uh and the style of reading can be different than what i was hearing in my head which isn't either right nor wrong but maybe makes you think about um, a passage in a different way or a character in a different way um, so yeah, no, it's good, and I I listen to a lot of audiobooks lately, mm. um, and they've become hugely popular. Um, 
and so uh, anyway, so yeah, that's it's. Uh, I think it's worth doing both mm-hmm. um, to get the additional input. Yeah, I love what you were saying about the Maltese falcon and like the contrast of the words with the body. I definitely noticed that. And when we had our episode, we had Mike Nugent on as a guest. So um, listeners, if you haven't listened to the Maltese Falcon episodes, go back to that. But one of the things that keeps coming up in that episode, and I would say even in just conversation with Carolyn and I, is that we had different takes on what was actually happening or who this person was. And as I'm reading in my head, I I think it's Mm -hmm. the definitive take, like, obviously. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was really surprised when Carolyn had a different viewpoint and our guest, Mike, had a third viewpoint. Do you you run into that a lot? Is that kind of part of the charm or how how does that work? Yeah, and I think um, it's part of the frustration, too, because sometimes people do the same thing they do with my grandfather. Oh, he's a drunk. Oh, he's crooked. And it's like, did you actually read the book? He's never <laughs> drunk in the book. He drinks. Mm-hmm. But Sam Spade is never drunk. Right. I mean, he does drink. Um, but he's never out of control the way Nick Charles is out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he's crooked, really? In in what way? You know, he said he likes the crooks to think he's crooked. Mm-hmm. He gives back all the money. He doesn't really do anything, you know, Untoward, that he can't tell the cops. Well, mm-hmm. maybe it fudges a little bit here and there, but <laughs> um, but that's a that's a sloppy, a lazy reading sometimes on Sam Spade, or they just have this image in their head, you know, from having halfway watched a little bit of the movie, and mm-hmm. um, so uh, so they don't. But yeah, he's um, I I you know some people will say that the Maltese Falcon is the first American existentialist novel. Oh, hmm. tell me so, about that. Sam Spade is surrounded by lies, he can trust nothing, and he's kind of shed the rules of society, you know, he in the way mm. existentialists, you know, did you have to, or uh, he doesn't care about tradition so much, he doesn't care about, you know, what he's supposed to do, he knows the things he has to do, he has to, you know, do his job. Um, and protect himself and his client, and then to serve his city because he lives in San Francisco and um, he has a, a, a the rent to pay. He has an obligation to help make his city safe. Um, so I don't find him amoral or immoral. I think he just has a different set of rules that he lives by personally, and they don't necessarily match up with what society would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's so a hard-boiled, is... very cold element. So I think some people draw mm-hmm. from that. After Miles Archer, his partner, dies, Sam Spade immediately starts putting up, you know, new signage. <laughs> so yeah. um, there, there's not a lot of love lost, but there's also not, um, there's not really any sense of like human mourning there it just really feels very cold of course he and he and miles didn't like each other Mm-mm. yeah it's weird uh, they were partners <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny if you get a chance go back and read joe gore's uh, spade and archer and it's mm. a prequel and oh, so joe really? kind of invents some backstory on that and it's it's very well done mm-hmm. uh joe uh joe was a friend of the family and and mm. a well-regarded uh det- fiction writer de- crime fiction writer um, he died on the 50th anniversary of my grandfather's death. No way. Uh, so. That's a great suggestion. Anyway, so, but yeah, the, um, but obviously, yeah, there's no love lost mm-hmm. between Spade and Archer mm-hmm. from the beginning. So I, I don't, th- I, that doesn't bother me, but mm-hmm. I've read the book so many times now. That, 
it's, it would be hard to tell. Mm-hmm. So I think it bothers me that people say, well, if he really loved Bridget, he wouldn't have turned her in. Oh, I know. Like, I get sorry. so mad at that. Serial murderess. Uh-huh. She was yeah. going to kill him. Yeah, I know. He was totally yeah, pragmatic yeah, about that. Complete sociopath. Thank yeah. you, everyone. Yeah. Julie yeah. agrees with me. <laughs> Julie agrees with me. That's all I want to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do? Let her loose on society so she can keep doing what she's doing? Exactly. Uh, you know. Exactly. So, yeah, that's a... Well, they act like it's his fault for not loving enough. And I was like, she's killed every single person that gave her an inch. (laughs) And she could kill him just as easily. She definitely will. She will kill him. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and uh, my my collaborator, Rick Lehman, will always point out, you know, that some people will call the Maltese Falcon a MacGuffin, which isn't really accurate because a MacGuffin is is meaningless Hmm. it's just a token where the Maltese falcon is not meaningless um, it actually goes back to the 1530s when the knights of malta truly did pay the rent with a live falcon um, each year to uh, the emperor of spain uh, in order to live on malto gozo and i think it's como the maltese uh, islands uh, so that part of the story is true. They paid, mm. and they did supposedly actually do make a jeweled bird that was lost. Um, a lot of that story is accurate. Cool. Um, so if that was their rent to the emperor of Spain, Sam Spade is willing to give up that Maltese falcon and turn it over to the cops mm-hmm. um, because that's how he pays the rent to live in the city and, mm-hmm. and cares for his city. So it is not so meaningless as a shaggy, you know, just a, a shaggy dog. Um, so, but uh, yeah, it's it, it's all just fascinating, and there's rabbit holes all over the place. That you <laughs> yes, know. yes. Oh. Well, what are what are some from the Thin Man? I I love your kind of you've been so deep in this work. I love hearing you set the record <laughs> straight. Is there anything about the Thin Man you want to set straight to? How about Asta? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. So I love the the fox terriers were were all the rage back in the 1930s. Or not sorry, not fox terriers. Schnauzers. schnauzers. There was schnauzer societies and and things mm-hmm. in New York, uh, and so that was kind of a, a fashionable breed back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and my grandfather loved dogs, and he would have known the difference. Um, it has to be a fairly large schnauzer too, because he jumps up and puts his paws on on Nick's belly. But in the movie, of course, they changed it to Asto is a wire fox terrier. Um, that dog's name was originally Daisy and was already a, a well-regarded, you know, movie dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but they eventually changed the dog's name to Asta mm-hmm. um, and did that. So then everybody forgot that it was a schnauzer in the story and they mm-hmm. just think it's the wire fox terrier. So that's <laughs> always nice to set straight. Mm-hmm. Um, and Asta, uh, Probably named after the dog owned by a friend of my grandfather, mm-hmm. Lillian Hellman, Laura mm-hmm. Perlman. So, uh, so, anyways, but I think that's fun. And my grandfather loved dogs, so he would have he would have known, and I, he probably enjoyed writing about the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, going with that, don't you think um, Lillian Hellman tells the story? You know, you have to always take a little couple spoonfuls of salt with Lillian Hillman's stories <laughs> but she says that my grandfather told her that she was uh Nora and she mm. was uh you know all flattered and happy and then he also added that she was also the villainous and the silly girl so <laughs> she was all of 
elements of all of them. And she says, I'm not sure if he was kidding. It still bothers me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, that was fine. But he did write people he knows. Mm -hmm. Um, We had mentioned earlier, you know, there is no physical description of Nora. Very, very little anyways. She has dark, sparkling eyes, a nice smile. And he once kind of halfway jokingly describes her as a uh, lanky brunette with a wicked jaw. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, if you go back to Red Harvest or uh, the Maltese Falcon, when somebody walks in the room, there's a close description. Mm-hmm. You know if their ears are wrinkled or yeah. they're tall or short or how their clothes fit. There's none of that with Nora. Um, and we know, and she knows she's fairly tall. She's taller than Dorothy, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the reason that there is no close physical description of Nora is because she is modeled on Lillian Hellman. Mm. And if my grandfather had to write a close physical description of what Lillian Hellman looked like, it would not be especially flattering. Really? She was a very she was a very stylish woman. Mm-hmm. She knew how to dress and carry herself and she was very proud of her tiny feet and you know she had lovely hats, mm-hmm. but just to physically describe her was mm-hmm. not going to make it anybody you know sloping shoulders weak chin you know (laughs) fat nose uh it was not going to come off well so i think i think my grandfather did the judicious thing Mm -hmm. and just left it out Mm -hmm. um he doesn't he also doesn't describe himself Mm -hmm. um which is uh, harder in the first person he he manages to do it sometimes with the with the continental op the continental op will say something like well he was an inch or two taller than i was that would make him you know five foot nine or you know things along those lines but uh it doesn't bother with nick so maybe because he didn't describe nora he kind of leaves himself a blank slate as well because there's even less description of nick but we Um, get we get this sense in the book that he is an attractive man dorothy age 20 is in love with him or thinks she's in love with him. And he has some sort of past with Mimi and he has this reputation as a ladies mm-hmm. man. So we, you know, we don't know the degree to which yeah. um, that reputation yeah. is warranted, but even at the end of the first chapter, you know, Nora is sort of teasing him about, you know, at the last part at the Harrison's party or the Quinn's uh-huh. party that we went to yesterday. The redhead. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. So it does seem to be kind of an open marriage. They're both kind of experimenting, you know, on the side or at least, you know, having flirtatious uh, relationships at least. Mm-hmm. She's off with uh, going to the the movies or the show with somebody else mm-hmm. and... Uh, Yes, yes, yes. So that was interesting. And he's quite a bit older than she is. Uh-huh. I mean, he's what, 41, 41 and she's maybe 26. 26. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's quite an age difference. Mm-hmm. And she would have been only 19 or 20 when they got married. Right. Right? Because he hasn't worked as a detective for six years. So she, she was, would have been you know, Dorothy's age, essentially. Yeah, and yes, Dor- Dorothy comes across. <laughs> to me, Dorothy comes across simultaneously as sort of this teenager, not fully formed, and this sort of um, very dangerous, sort of vixen-like, you know, femme fatale. Yeah. She's this interesting mix of the two, yeah. at least on the page, not not in the movie, but on the page. Yeah, yeah, and she's kind of coming into her own sexuality and figuring out what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, she is, she's playing, and they're obviously, you know, oh, she has a lovely little body, or mm-hmm. who's that little, and yeah. they're yeah. obviously admiring um, her physically. Mm-hmm. 
so yeah, it is. Uh, it is. It is strange. Uh, it, it, somewhere you had mentioned uh, in, in your notes the the line about the uh, getting excited. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> which was boulderized. So mm-hmm. the. Um, I had I had to double check because you know in the in the current yeah uh, Random House book it says uh, something you want to read the line if you got it there about getting excited yeah I have it here oh, it says tell me something Nick tell me the truth when you were wrestling with Mimi didn't you get excited and then you put um, that in the original oh, uh, well let me let me read the the original yes mm-hmm. please mm-hmm. this is from. Uh, not a first edition, but an early printing. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me something, Nick. Tell me the truth. When you were wrestling with Mimi, didn't you have an erection? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the Canadians, the, he was refused publication in Canada until they changed it. Really? Um, and, and some place, yeah, and somewhere down the line, Random House changed it, and it, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. They originally... Um, took advantage of that and in the ads they would say oh well you know people say it's that five word question on page blah 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 and that's mm-hmm. why people are buying the book but it's way more than that <laughs> so they were you know doing this and then but at some point it's funny there's a reason there's a uh, forget i think it's an ebook coming up a, a british publication a, you know we do these all the time in different mm-hmm. languages or countries mm-hmm. and there was a question because the n word is in here mm-hmm. oh right. right and do we change it mm-hmm. and but and i didn't even think I, I should go back to the editors and say you know maybe when we're keeping the n word with a we have a disclaimer at the front sure uh, you know um but uh, we need to put back in the erection line too. <laughs> I love uh, that approach. That's, that's what it, that's <laughs> yeah, what it gonna, was originally. Yeah. So in, in the Canadian gonna, Gutenberg online, so you know, it's you can't. It's not in the. I, I don't know how the different mm-hmm. Gutenbergs work, but in the Canadian Gutenberg, uh, it uses the word erection. Online. Oh, does it? It okay. does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't. I don't know. But yeah, in this uh, the. The contemporary paperback, it's not there. Yeah, um, yeah. So, which yeah. is kind of interesting. And this one is uh, an original printing, I think it's sixth printing of the first edition. So it's not anything mm-hmm. valuable and it doesn't have a jacket. But um, but it is the real deal from 1934. Mm-hmm. So, so this might get in the well, weeds anyway, so a little yeah. bit. But as a trustee, Julie, how do you navigate these sorts of things when people have these changes or suggestions or what's your guiding philosophy behind it? You know, we try to stay true to the original and that's, you know, as much as we can. And, you know, we can't that putting in a disclaimer at the front is Mm -hmm. people have to understand you can't, you can't understand history by changing history. So uh, yeah, we do try to keep it. When Rick Lehman and I worked on the short stories, we had to work from uh, the original black mask, um, pages, so mm-hmm. magazines, so we had PDFs of the original pages, and mm-hmm. sometimes there's typos in there, mm-hmm. and sometimes there's little things you can't read, and so we very cautiously corrected the type, you know, what were mm-hmm. obvious typos, right. um, but we tried not to, uh, you know, editorialize when mm-hmm. we do it. We try to stay as close to the original as we can, and then, you know, if you need context, you provide context, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think it's right or fair to go back and change uh to modern sensibility and there's some things even now you watch the thin man i was watched the the film and uh nick 
goes pretends like he's going to backhand Nora yes. at one point and kind of just and it's like ooh no 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 don't yeah, do yeah, that yeah. <laughs> um, you know but in those days uh, mm-hmm. you know that's that's where it was so you can't uh, can't whitewash history that's sort of honeymooners humor you know that <laughs> yes. you know why that why I oughta kind of humor yeah um, which you know, is in with modern sensibility is harder to watch, but it was popular at the time. And when we were watching it yesterday, I, I knew even just seeing the their, their physicality and their faces, they were always scrunching their faces up and making faces at each other. And so even (laughs) when they were, you know, he was pretending to backhand or she's scrunching her face up at him. (laughs) So you knew this was a common sort of way that they engaged and that there was no fear there on either part. So there was this sort of implicit trust, not trying to excuse or defend it. It's just as a viewer, I didn't feel like horrified by it. I just thought, oh, well, we wouldn't do that today is what I was thinking, but I wasn't. Yeah, but it was a game for them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's not a game we would play now, but it was a Mm -hmm. game for them back in those days. Yeah. Well, so, and this comes up a lot. I'd love you. I'd love your, and I think I know what it is, but your your broader take. So it's been a big story recently. Netflix bought all of Raw Dahl's work, oh. um, hmm. and edited out much of his offensiveness mm-hmm. and reissued. So, of course, myself being me, I went back as soon as I heard that and bought older editions <laughs> so that I would have the originals on e- like off eBay I'm like yeah. give me the full collection um, so that it's not lost um, but yeah that's, that was Netflix's choice um, and I wow. think they're gonna you know move yeah. forward with that owning that IP oh. which when it was weird to me that a streaming service now owns IP like that rather yeah. than like a, yeah. a literary trust mm-hmm. um, and then uh, yeah but people are making obviously like really different choices than the kind of choices you're yeah. making. How do you think about yeah. that? No, that I had not heard that story. That's interesting. So, um, you know, he was married to the actress Patricia Neal, and they had uh, several children. One who was killed by a taxi cab in in New York, mm-hmm. and I think another. And then she had a stroke and was in very bad mm-hmm. way. Um, but it's interesting. Uh, my grandfather was good friends with. Pat Neal, matter of fact, he used to babysit for her sometimes mm. when she would go out on auditions. Never liked Rule Doll. He thought he was a real jerk. <laughs> uh, so, which I, after reading her, Pat's, uh, Pat Neal's uh, memoir, I would kind of agree mm-hmm. with her, with him. Uh, so, that's interesting. But no, I, um, I, I can understand, you know, Netflix probably made them a very lucrative offer. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a matter of making the compromise or letting the work die. Mm. Um, so that might have been a way of keeping the works alive. So mm. uh, it's it's hard to judge. There, it's it, there is more to managing an estate thoughtfully than one might think. Mm-hmm. And people come in and go, "Oh, I have this great idea. I want to do blah blah blah," and you turn them away, and they don't. You can't tell them why. But maybe there's something else going on over here that's yeah. that's in the works, or over here that's in the works, mm-hmm. and I can't tell you about that stuff. And you know. Um, so some people are very understanding and some people, you know, not so much. Sure. But, um, it is part of management. You know, mm-hmm. it really is a management decision. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, so there's a lot of, in The Thin Man, there's a lot of differences between the book and the movie. Starting with the very first minutes of the movie, we meet Claude Wynant, 
We see him working on his invention. His daughter rushes in with her fiance to announce that she's engaged and she's extremely affectionate with her father who she adores. And it's, it's interesting because the movie comes out so soon after the book. I, Mm. I was wondering what, what would have initiated or necessitated these kinds of changes on, on screen? Yeah. Well, I think they were trying to to set up, so from a, a movie maker's perspective, trying to set up that understanding that, you know, who Clyde Winant was, mm-hmm. that he was a real person. I don't know. I, you know, the things that struck me when I, and actually when I read, listened to the book this time, was what was missing. Yeah. I love the scene in the movie where Asta and Nick go in the basement at the workshop and yeah. just, asked to start sniffing around yeah. and and I love the look on William Powell's face where it like click and the like mm-hmm. the light bulb goes off and he mm. knows what's happened um, and it's not in the book no uh, and the other scene at the end the denouement where in the movie they have that lovely dinner party with all the cops dressed up as yeah. waiters and I wanted um, to bring it's, that it's, scene up for sure <laughs> yeah yeah, it's a, it's a great scene. But mm-hmm. in the book, it's just Nick talking to Nora mm-hmm. and explaining everything. So you can see why they sure. wanted, you know, this on film, this played much better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it, uh, it does. So uh, yeah, and the, uh, the screenwriters had been given the task of kind of developing the love story between Mm -hmm. Nick and Nora. That was my grandfather had given them the mystery story, Mm -hmm. but it was their job to expand on the relationship between the two um, people. So you can, and they were good at it. You know, they were, they were good writers. Good Um, writers and good actors. I love William Powell and and Myrna Loy. The the end of the movie is, is um, really remarkable in the sense of how Agatha Christie it's like, (laughs) you gather everybody into the drawing room or the dining room yeah. and you, you know, all the entire yeah. um, cast of potential murderers is sitting right there. And it was like Hercule Poirot is yeah. about to reveal the truth. Only it's, it's Nick Charles who's going to do it. But, um, and so it became yeah. this cozy mystery on screen, even more so than in, in written form. So it, it, feel, yeah. it felt to me a little bit like it was borrowing from that and all the more interesting it, for me because it did. It's interesting. Now, I hadn't thought about this. In the My grandfather wrote the screen treatment for the second and third movies. Mm-hmm. In the second one, the one that features um, Jimmy Stewart, he ends up being, spoiler alert, the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, no. At the end of the uh at the end of the book they do the same thing they gather everyone in this apartment mm. um up in uh telegraph hill in san francisco mm-hmm. and they have this big confrontation with everyone mm-hmm. uh jimmy stewart in the screen treatment goes out the window i believe and crashes <laughs> onto the rocks below uh and there's a, a big fight scene half in and out of the window um which got eliminated but mm-hmm. the but the scene where everyone it's the same kind of thing mm-hmm. it's everyone gathering together for the denouement yeah. um, and it's very cinematic yeah yeah, yeah. so I like, I like i don't sorry go ahead i would say i don't think he would necessarily appreciate the the parallels with the uh the english cozies no. because that really wasn't his thing no. <laughs> but but you know you had to make good movies mm-hmm. so and it was a big money maker mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And along those lines, like the call, the call of making something cinematic seems challenging. Mm-hmm. One of the big changes that I feel like I kind of get, but I didn't love from the movie um, was the shrapnel in the in the leg, which was not in the book. Oh. Mm. Mm-mm. Yeah. I went back and checked. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. in the book, oh. he's solving this hmm. uh, largely through intuition. He never, mm-hmm. they, they don't x-ray the bones. They don't see, he knows, he knows it's him as soon as they find yeah. the body. And he explains the only way it could work together. And to me that, I love that. Like that sort of logical unraveling that this is the only way it fits. And Nora the whole time, she's like, what? I don't know. Are you sure? I thought detectives yeah. really had more to go on than that. Mm-hmm. And he's like, nah, this, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. this we is We make it. our best guess. We make our guess best and then we make it work. Right. Uh, yeah. But yeah. then in the movie, that's like, they didn't do that. They found an actual evidence to detect and it was a shrapnel yeah, and they x-rayed right. it, right. you know, and it's like the clue, yeah. the clincher. It was the clincher. But yeah. It, yeah, that's that's not in the book in it. I think that kind of bummed me out. <laughs> one of the challenges that I have yeah. is that I'm conflating the book and the movie, especially, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've read the book uh, several times now, probably three times. I've seen the movie more than three times. And after a while, they start weaving in together. And I'm like, well, Dorothy's fiance. Okay, there is no, <laughs> like, know. if you've only read the book, you're like, fiance for Dorothy. Yeah. <laughs> so that that does, you know, that does get a little challenging. Yeah, no, and I feel the same thing. And actually, when I listened to the audiobook, I was waiting for those two scenes because I had seen them in the movies so yeah. many times yeah. and they weren't there. And it was like, yeah. okay, I had to really think. But then when I got to the end and read the, as I, I've been going back and forth and I went to the end in the book mm-hmm. and was reading it, it was like, okay, now I, I understand why they did the dinner party scene. Because yeah. yeah. oh, you, yeah. you just couldn't have him talking that long. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and... I do love it, but I feel like Nora, it it all just fits. It all just fits in the book. And her last line, I just thought, hit the nail mm-hmm. on the head. She goes, that may be, but it's all pretty unsatisfactory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, right. It is a little loosey-goosey. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that goes to the time in my grandfather's life. It goes mm-hmm. to Nick Charles yeah. being kind of the semi-retired, you know, retired detective who's willing. Uh, uh, but, and yeah, and a lot of it, I guess with all of these detectives, it's really powers of observation. Mm-hmm. And watching, which Nora does also, she sure. fills mm-hmm. in a few uh, a few blanks. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's really those powers of observation and understanding human nature yeah. that really make the difference for the detective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think that's uh, important. And it's a reflection of my grandfather's training as a private detective and a shadow man. Apparently, he was a pretty good shadow man. Uh, back in the day, which is considering it was what one six one and a half, I yeah. think. Yeah. Uh, so he was he was a Pinkerton detective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then you know the Continental Op, of course, works for oof, the Trans American uh, con- Continental. Con- yeah, okay, continental. That makes sense. He's the Continental Op. <laughs> um, and then so Sam Spade works for himself. So, mm-hmm. and then Nick, I, maybe I'm thinking of Nick Charles is also had, had passed as a detective. And I think he worked for the trans, trans America, or yes. something trans. I think that's the other name okay. you're thinking of. Yes. Boy, I, I, yes. Yeah. Um, 
And so Sam Spade is a little bit of an outlier there because he's self-employed. What what do you think Dashiell was drawing on there? Because you could see with the Continental Op, he can draw on his experience having worked for this agency. And now he's got sort of this guy who calls his own shots. Yeah. Well, maybe it does. It goes back to the way he described Sam Spade, mm. that he is the dream, the dream detective mm. that most detectives thought they could be and a few in their cockier moments thought they approached I think is how that goes mm-hmm. uh, so right he's the the pure detective mm-hmm. in the uh, in the archives in Texas there's a story called magic which we've since published in the hunter and other stories and it's it's a strange story with a, a true magician who calls up demons and things but there's a line in there that there's the the uh, the magician is talking to his apprentice and he mm. says, um, to the extent that one becomes a magician, one ceases to be a man. Mm. Um, just like, you know, in this profession, you ceased or in this profession. So you become, your job is who you are. That is your identity. Um, and it's it's very clear in the Continental Op because he, he never even is given a name. Mm. He is simply the op and mm-hmm. he has, it has subsumed his personality. Yeah. Um, so if you take that and then distill it down kind of even further, Sam Spade is a detective and he says that, right? Mm-hmm. He, like dogs chasing rabbits, you can't change who you are. So he becomes that that detective and sheds almost everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but then, yeah, it just doesn't apply with Nick Charles. Yeah. It's kind of like he's lost his way. Um, he's he's been distracted, and that's why I've you know I I see my grandfather in it, but it's a sad a sad kind of version of Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, so which is too bad because it's it is that merry mayhem that people just ate up. Yeah, and they loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they absolutely loved it. Although even uh, Nora didn't want to do it during World War Two. She would she was said no 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 I'm going to go volunteer with the Red Cross. Not going to do this anymore. I can't can't do it again. Really? Um, they were just too happy, too jolly, and you know, during those difficult times, maybe it began to feel cloying and false. Very detached from the reality. So that detachment yeah. is fun, perhaps to a mm-hmm. limit, and then, then, then maybe yeah. it's not quite as fun anymore, and it just seems yeah. a little yeah. too odd and a little too, you know, detached from reality. Yeah, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, it, that's why audiences went to see the films mm-hmm. exactly. because it was an escape it's from escape. reality. Well, it's the perspective, so, right? Yeah. If you're watching it, you want the escape. But if you're making it, I could see like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, yeah. Is yeah. this what I should be doing? Is this the valuable yeah. work to do? And there's yeah. so many other troubles in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, so yeah. There's. I think the context does add a lot to these. You know, to the more you know about. Mm-hmm when you can appreciate them just on the page Mm -hmm. but i think the context adds a lot um, to this which you guys know because that's what you're doing right Mm -hmm. adding Mm -hmm. context yeah you remind me kind of this is a stupid parallel but i'll go ahead and say it (laughs) but you remind me um after 9 11 i think it was zoolander Mm. came out Mm. (laughs) <laughs> and it's such a stupid movie it's like ridiculously funny but i remember um his name just flew out of my head uh the star and the producer and the director he he felt like is this the movie i should be putting out right now you know it's is this yeah, the time in right. history that i should be making this movie right 
um, but it, it was wildly popular. I think it, the sort of detached yeah. humor from the reality of the world. You just, just needed kinda... something silly and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's, yeah. Yeah. in The Thin Man, there's all these like really quirky details. And one of the quirk, quirky things is, is Dorothy's brother. He's so strange. <laughs> he's so strange. And he's, um, at one point, he's fascinated. He, first of all, he's fascinated in anything having to do with odd psychology and mother fixation and, you know, what what, what have yeah. you. And um, then he's fascinated also by cannibalism. And so Nick and Charles... And incest. And incest. And, and Nick Charles gives him... Um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the book. Uh Oh, the, and uh, reads reads about Alfred Packer. Yeah, Alfred Packer. Yeah. It's the Duke's the, celebrated uh, criminal cases of America. Cases of, and he reads about is, Alfred Packer, the man eater yeah. who murdered his five companions in the mountains of Colorado. What like what's what's the deal with this character? <laughs> and then pages of the book are are allotted to pulling yeah. this description of Alfred Packer and what yeah. happened on this expedition. Lillian Hillman said he was just padding the book to add some more pages to it. I don't. I think that I think there's a, probably a lot of truth in that. Mm-hmm. There's also um, the Packer story has a lot to do with greed, mm-hmm. which is also you know a theme that runs through my grandfather's work. It's like mm-hmm. all these almost always the problem is greed. Yeah. Um, it, that Duke celebrated cases um, is a real book. Uh, my grandfather had owned personally a copy. Um, Sam Spade has a copy in huh. his apartment. Mm. Um, I have a copy yes. here, actually, that came out of a law library in San Francisco so cool. that I I bought from the at a public library uh, auction uh, at, in San Francisco. Um, but it is real. But yeah, probably he's just kind of padding the book mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, Gilbert. Gilbert is quite the character. <laughs> um, I like him, but he's so. Odd. Um, in so my grandfather wrote. The, I told you the first two screen treatments. He also wrote a partial one for another sequel, um, and in that it's only eight pages and it wasn't produced. But in that one, which we also published in uh, Return of the Thin Man, mm-hmm. um, Gilbert is the is the murderer. I um, wondered if he was going to murder his, somebody. <laughs> <laughs> he Gilbert has become Gilbert inherited control of all the money mm-hmm. and Macaulay has escaped from New York and he's gone to San Francisco mm-hmm. in women's clothing um, <laughs> Gild completely doesn't notice and helps him on the plane because he yeah. thinks he's just a little old lady and wow. then they're all running around San Francisco and I who gets shot Macaulay gets shot mm. No, I no Chris Jorgensen. I think gets mm-hmm. shot, and they in at the end it turns out it's Gilbert, and he says, "Well, don't I have a responsibility to protect my mother from these people who are trying to take all her money, nice. which you know is really my money because I'm going to be I'm in charge of it and will inherit." Right. So he kind of goes off the deep end, but they um <laughs> they knew better than to produce that movie and <laughs> blame it on the kid. Well. I'm glad you brought that up. One of the things, so towards the end, when they were wrapping things up in the book, Mm. and Nora's statement about it all being pretty unsatisfactory, Mm. to me it was like broader than how it it wrapped. I felt like there was a lot of loose ends. Mm. You know, there was a lot of things that went unanswered. 
you know, Harrison Quinn is still missing at the end of the book. Um, you know, there seems to be some implication of incest between Gilbert and Dorothy. Um, the bigamy charge, they just kind of like, well, we'll move on from that. <laughs> and uh-huh. there was the sparrow that kind of comes in and, and vanishes. Yeah. I, to me, I felt like he was almost setting up follow-up stories. I just thought, well, the next mm. one will be about Harrison Quinn and how he swindled his money and got murdered or something. <laughs> um, and then there weren't any more stories. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, am I imagining I that or... What's um, the deal? Yeah, prob- probably. <laughs> I, I, I don't think my grandfather could have stood to write another one of these. Really? Uh, yeah, I, I think it was, yeah, I don't think he could stomach it. He really wanted to write a political novel, mm-hmm. and he tried a few times. Um, the problems that he had when he wrote political novels was that he was setting them, as he often does, he cites newspaper headlines, mm-hmm. and he was citing newspaper headlines in that day. Well, the, what happens? It takes you six months, and in that time, there's, you know, there were the book uh, things are happening in South America and the socialist mm. uh, governments, and six months later, there's been a complete turnover, so yeah. the story doesn't really work anymore. Um, so, but yeah, he tried a number of other things. He wanted to get away from the detective genre, mm, yeah, um, but he needed. He needed to make money, so this made him way too much money. He is a man who dealt much better with adversity than he did with success. Mm-hmm. Why know. did he want to get away from writing detective work when it's, he's so... I mean, he's getting compared to Hemingway. It's not like he's non-literary about it. Yeah. Yeah, well, he said it was a kind of a dead end. That, you know, if you you do that, he wanted to, uh, you know, just... What do you say? I, he writes books about people. It's up to the readers to figure out what they're about. But I think he felt he'd, he'd been he'd been kind of corralled into this. And I think there's a lot of writers, even contemporary writers. You know, you write three books with this one character, and that's what your readers want is yeah. more of that character. Now you're beholden I, to that. Yeah, and you go to your publisher and go, I want to write this other stuff. And they're like, you know you know people that's not what anybody wants they want more of the same stuff yeah it it is a hard thing um and you do see writers try to break away we we discussed this in our last episodes with dan drake about dorothy sayers the nine tailors where dorothy sayers also wanted to maybe get away from the mystery form and she wanted to start writing other stuff and you know her readers want Lord Peter Whimsey. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you can see why these six movies, I think it's five or six movies of of Nick and Nora Charles, The Thin Man and all the variations are so popular as we want, we want more, we want to spend more time with these people. And so this is a book, certainly that could have spawned an entire series. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If he had, it, if it, he had there was inclined. a TV series. Mm. There was a TV series in the in, in the mid fifties. I've never actually seen it. I need to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, at least a few episodes. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, it could have. But it, I think it it burned itself out, and certainly wasn't what my grandfather wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, he said he said this book bored him. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> too bad. So, and, he'd, and he also said Glass Key was his favorite hmm. and that but that Maltese Falcon was his best yeah. interesting so in okay. different interviews over the years yeah so um how did he know, differentiate they're, they're his different. his favorite from his best why was that his favorite I think well a personal favorite hmm. but then he, he I think he felt that the Maltese Falcon was the most literate hmm. you know the, the best writing that he did but mm-hmm. he liked uh 
uh, Glass Key, and Glass Key is kind of a political novel as well, mm -hmm. um, because it's it deals with uh, corrupt politicians mm -hmm. and you know party party infighting mm -hmm. um, in in the Baltimore, you know, pseudo Baltimore. It, uh, yeah, he. Uh, Yeah. Well, Julie, we are amazingly so close to time again. But before <laughs> before we close, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the in the estate now. Uh, I hear there's talks of more things in the works. You mentioned a couple beforehand, but I'd love you to tell us about what creative projects yeah. might be upcoming or um, in, in conversation. Well, of the th well, in general, I don't talk much about <laughs> those things. There are. There are some reissues coming up. There is a stage adaptation being shopped. There is um, another discussions on a TV project. Um, and as you as you noted, there is uh, discussions between uh, Margot Robbie and her husband uh, Tom Ackerley's film company mm -hmm. and. Brad Pitt's Brad film Pitt. company and our people um, to do a re remake or any, some kind of a, a Thin Man movie. Mm -hmm. So we're excited about the possibilities. Um, can't really, you know, bad juju to talk about stuff. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You don't want to talk bad juju to talk about your eggs before they're hatched. Right. So, uh, so, but yeah, watch. So um, starting, uh, well, this we're recording on the 6th, so starting on the 14th mm -hmm. on AMC, mm -hmm. AMC Plus and Acorn, um, will be, and I'm very excited about mm -hmm. this, um, Monsieur Spade, a six-part limited series written by Tom, written and directed by Tom Frank with mm -hmm. Tom Fontana. So this is Sam Spade living in the south of France mm -hmm. uh, in 1963, I think it is, mm -hmm. um, trying to live quietly, of course, in his little village, <laughs> uh, but trouble follows him so like nick charles he is dragged back in to an investigation mm -hmm. so um and starring clive I, owen the, i think yeah starring clive owen mm -hmm. so very exciting mm -hmm. he looks great in the role i've i've seen the trailers i've read a draft of the first episode i have not seen the rest of it so i'll have i'm waiting until next oh, week from tomorrow ah. right uh yeah, yeah so soon um reviews have been embargoed i think monday the reviews can come out mm -hmm. uh so we'll see but i'm reading between the lines and i think it's going to be a hit so so we'll see yeah um, we're looking forward to yeah. it yeah Sounds yeah. fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty exciting stuff. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it is funny. As, you know, as long as this stuff is going around, there's always still, you know, kind of something percolating. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And Julie, if folks uh, want to find you on uh, social media or a website or anything about the uh, estate, where can they do that? What are your things to you know, look we, at you? Yeah, we don't really have an estate page. Um, the best thing I can do, which is sounds slightly self-serving um, my Facebook page you have to make sure you put in Julie M Ravette mm -hmm. um, and I do that is my Hammett focused page mm -hmm. so I do you know announce things and oh sometimes just put up fun stuff mm -hmm. uh, quotes from letters or photos or um, different little tidbits mm -hmm. um, posted on that on the Facebook page if you scroll down a bit there is an audio tape 
there mm-hmm. uh, there's a, a clip a YouTube clip on there which is the only known recording of my grandfather oh. it, voice and video so he actually had a, a little cameo appearance on a television show cool uh, I think it was too sharp knife so he's uh, slim they call him and he's working in the railroad <laughs> station mm-hmm. um, but it's fun to see and that's literally the only the only clip that has surfaced um, of oh. him in, in anything wow. so only there's no not even a voice recording so yeah anyway so but yeah anyways julie m rivette on facebook and like me and i'll you know i'll like you yeah so, <laughs> so that's that's julie m r i v e t t on facebook so correct I, everyone follow follow julie um yeah this has been an amazing conversation yes. um thank you so much next up for, for our next month, our second book of 2024, it's The Postman Always Rings Twice. <laughs> a groundbreaking and, noir. An excellent novel. Yeah. An excellent novel. Yeah. Groundbreaking noir by James M. Cain, published in 1934 in a dusty roadside diner. Love and lust ignite a murderous plot. As secrets unravel, two lovers are drawn deeper into a web of crime, leading to a shocking climax. climax. Learn more about The Postman Always always let me try that again learn more about the postman always rings twice and all of our 2024 book club selections at tetonicandtoxin.com and share your thoughts on our website or facebook and instagram at tetonicandtoxin subscribe so you never miss an episode be sure to listen to our other episode with julie rivette on the thin man yes it's going to be an exciting 2024 Mm -hmm. thank you so much julie this has been Uh, fascinating so much fun thank you oh good thank you sarah thank you carolyn it has Mm -hmm. been fun Mm -hmm. And until next time, listeners, be sure to stay mysterious.